John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Accessed entry 1327.ps4304. Certificate number 34096. The Transcontinental Airway System. You know, now that I'm sort of getting on in age. I've started to come to grips with the fact that I may never be a Pony Express writer. What? Come on, keep the dream alive. You've probably had the same realization. Uh, I'm definitely not going to win an Olympic medal in hockey. <laughs> I can say that. <laughs> so that one's still on the table for me. Yeah. But the problem with the Pony Express is that it ran for an incredibly short period of time. It only ran between April 1860 and October 1861. And yet its legend is so large. It I looms know. so large. It's like a year and a half. Like, I'm sure there's like Tom Selleck TV shows I don't even remember <laughs> that ran longer than the Pony Express. Well, is it the Erie Canal problem where they started building the Erie Canal to solve a problem and then it turned out the railroads came along and solved it? That's essentially what happened. Two days after the Pony Express stopped running, the Transcontinental Telegraph was connected in Salt Lake City. Huh. And so now you had real-time communication between Omaha and Sacramento, and you didn't need a bunch of guys with pouches. Why anymore. did it take so long? They, they, they don't have pouches like for reproductive purposes. I see. Though. I see. They're, that's they're not where they keep their young. They're not marsupials. <laughs> they're, they're not kangaroo men. They are carrying leather mailbags. But why did it take so long for the Pony Express to be developed? Seems like there could have been a Pony Express a lot earlier. I guess uh, even as it turned out, it was not financially practical. So maybe all the naysayers were correct. <laughs> like when the Pony Express started, it cost $5, dollars $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $5, $
<laughs> it took 60 years to breed opossum and wallaby <laughs> men who could fit all the mail in their uh, in their mucus pouches. Yeah, but that was a time, right? Between 1860 and, and 1920, boy, a lot of technological advance happened then. Can you imagine like your, uh, your grandpa got his mail from the Pony Express and yours is going airmail. Yeah. And it wasn't even, it wasn't even that long. The problem is that the, you know, airmail started very early. It was very clear. This was a, a real good use case for aviation because the Wright brothers flight is 1903. And just 15 years later, um, America is monkeying around with airmail. The problem is there's no radar and radio ground to air radio is brand new and not really perfected yet either. It's certainly not in common use. Right. Everyone was flying just based on they're following the road. Yeah. They're basically, they're looking out the window and being like, uh, take a left here. So flying in bad weather was difficult and flying at night was almost impossible. There was no way to, to know or see where you were going besides looking and I feel like that's true. I mean, even when you fly commercially today, I feel like a lot of pilots are like, we're just going to follow I-90 until we get through the, and I, <laughs> and I know they're not resorting to that, but it seems like that's how a lot of air routes work today. Commercially, uh, they're all flying according to their instruments, but yes, the, it, it's not a coincidence that the, that the roads are going the same way. The routes, uh, yeah, do tend to follow highways. So this was a difficult problem. How do you get pilots across the country. Cause you, you could now by 1920, you could get across America in like 30 hours by plane. Well, and what's crazy is that even that was astonishing given that the first transcontinental flight across the United States only happened like in 1911. Um, this is all stuff that I just happened to know off the top of your head <laughs> because of, because I'm an aviation nerd, but, uh, William Randolph Hearst actually put up a prize for the first successful transcontinental flight. This was the kind of stunt thing that uh, these yellow journalism papers would do. And they actually jumpstarted a lot of great stuff in, in addition to the Spanish American war. And it was premised on airmail. Like the people that attempted it, like took a bag of mail as a proof of concept. <laughs> it's like holding up a newspaper when you're a hostage. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I really did it. I really flew. Here's a letter. It's, but it's also like, this isn't just a thing where some guys are just doing this for sport. It has real practical purposes. I guess that's true because, you know, today we, we think of uh, passenger airlines as the use case. That's the killer app for aviation. Right. In addition to shooting down Russian MiGs or whatever. And back then it was not clear at all that that was ever going to be a thing. They, they couldn't imagine a time when the average person would be able to fly across the country. Well, yeah, an airplane at max could probably carry, what, one passenger and two wing walkers? <laughs> <laughs> That's like economy comfort if you get the seat. Uh -huh. uh, for the base fare, you have to be a wing walker. And they give you one of those big sticks. Those big, great Yeah, that's right. Sticks. Well, and you have to be wearing a leotard. <laughs> but the first, like, nonstop flight across the United States wasn't until 1923. And that was, like, a specially modified plane. Right. So even these coast-to-coast -coast runs would require stops for refueling. Yeah, and sandwiches and, and re potty re breaks. Repiloting, yeah, sw yeah, swapping off pilots. But still, the telegraph did not solve the problem of how to get paper copies of a letter or a newspaper from coast to coast, right. those still would have had to go on a train or on a boat from Cape Horn or Panama, the later Panama Canal. So the fact that you could now get stuff coast to coast, a physical object in a day or two, 
was a huge deal. I've never sent a telegram. Have you? I have like a, I've, have you ever sent, sent a singing telegram? No, it seems like I should have though. Like a guy in a gorilla suit to say happy birthday. I don't even know if I, if a modern audience would know what a singing telegram was. That was still a thing. I feel like that, that those have probably survived more than actual telegrams, right? right? Except, except the whole joke of a singing telegram was that the people there would at least be familiar with the idea of someone in a pillbox hat saying right. telegram. You're expecting a regular telegram, but whoa, what a <laughs> twist. It's going to be sung. But I think a telegram by definition is pretty short. So if you wanted to write a letter that said like, well, Ma got hurt when the pigs die turned over, like it, it, you couldn't like telegraph that. Right. You'd have to you'd think how many times you'd have to write stop. Right. We have the caller again. Stop. The diarrhea <laughs> won't stop. 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 <laughs> So, yeah, so there was a case for, even in the days of the Telegraph, there was a case for, you got to get I guess correspondence we, and newspapers. The more I think about it, it's hilariously ludicrous that you and I are sitting here trying to think of a justification for the mail. <laughs> <laughs> Why would they do mail? Like, couldn't they just, Well, like, we're, we're speaking to an audience. Telegraph that, it? We're speaking to an audience for whom actual mail delivery is like Western Union, I assume. You know, yeah, right. I mean, paper mail delivery is not going to survive our civilization. I, because of how old I am, I still have a bag of all of the love letters I've ever received in my life, which all started to peter out in about what, 2000, 2000. No, I guess it was 2006 or something. People stopped sending me letters, were these, like scented letters. Were these people you knew or are these just, are these just fans? No, no, no. This started a long time before I had any fans. In I'm fact, just wondering about the last one in 2006. In fact, <laughs> most of the early ones I got were from people who were decidedly not fans of mine anymore. Dear so, John. So the scent was not a good scent. Yeah, it was just as they dipped it in their cat's box. <laughs> uh, but you know, letters, right? you you got letters, you sent letters, presumably. Sure. Like old enough uh, to have sent a letter. As a kid, you'd get a birthday card from grandma with a $5 bill in it, maybe. Yeah. Or a friend would go somewhere and send you a postcard. Sure. You'd have, you'd write somebody a letter to say, thank you for the postcard and or the $5 bill. You know, now it's, the mail is just a a way for drones to bring in your Amazon stuff. Sure. Direct marketers to send me postcards offering chiropractic services. I just want to see ladies plus size activewear. Mm. And that's what the catalog guy delivers. But there used to be, there'd be good mail in in with the junk, in with the credit card offers. I still do get checks because I don't want everything to be direct deposited because I like to open an envelope with a check in it. I do that too. And part of it, I tell myself is just so that, you know, I have a place, a time when I have to enter it in my spreadsheet and stay in sync. But really, I just like opening the mail and getting money from grandma. Yeah, me too. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Send me a check. Send me a check and have it be like on check paper. Are you asking our listeners to send you a check or is this a hypothetical request? I would like all futurelings, both past and present and future, to send me a check in the mail. John Roderick, care O, rural free delivery, <laughs> Seattle Wa. <laughs> uh, so, but you're, the, you're, you're like the, uh, the the children's show host from back in the day who was like, go to your mommy and daddy's pockets and see if right. you can find these green rectangles of paper and send them to Uncle Joey. Yeah, Boston, Mass. Oh, two, one, three, four. That guy got fired though. So yes, I I believe that the mail was important, and I believe that getting it cross country and 
one or two days would be an amazing innovation. It was still mostly credit card offers. That's what the Pony Express guys were carrying. It was all like, you may be eligible for a balance transfer. You know, he, that guy's getting shot up by the <laughs> Pony, mm-hmm. bitten by scorpions just to deliver your uh, 0% APR <laughs> credit card offers. Have you been to the Highline Medical Center? <laughs> it's the closest hospital to you. Or maybe like an offer from a hotel you spent like one night in eight years ago telling you about their summer rates. That's always a good use yeah, of that's uh, nice. money. Or like sometimes you donate money to one good cause and then like 20 like-minded causes like consent the blood in the water. Oh, sure. Well, you know, the Democratic Party sends me lots and <laughs> right. lots and lots of questionnaires that are all like full of exclamation points. And I'm like, sorry, guys. Sorry. I like the emails where like the subject lines are increasingly desperate from Nancy Pelosi. Open this now. We need to get to work. Like, sorry, Nancy. Hold on. Let me get my pants on. (laughs) When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout anywho without radio or radar this was a big ask for pilots to get across the country because Like at night, you're literally just in a black box. This was the fun part of being a pilot, though. I mean, you you had your leather cap on and open to the air and just finding your way across America. When it was, I mean, 1926, this would have been a crazy time to drive across America. Yeah. And like in 1926, it still took, uh, it took months, I think, when Eisenhower did that drive across America at the end of World War II. I think we may have talked about this in the omnibus before. Roads just ended when you got outside American cities. They were washed out. There yeah, were no you bridges. Just kind of wended your way. Dirt and gravel. I mean, I my heart is filled with that kind of strange nostalgia for a thing I've never actually experienced. And that would probably be incredibly annoying if we were to have to live in that world. But the idea of like starting up your airplane on a crisp morning, you know, out there like pushing your own propeller, putting your, your uh, fleece lined, you know, your actual fleece jacket. You've got a bag full of Edwardian pornography (laughs) that people have illegally put in the mail. Uh Knee-high leather boots and and a white silk scarf. And you like run it down some bumpy runway and then you're off across America. Oh, God, it's killing. You got to turn the propeller yourself. Come on. It's driving me crazy. I want this so badly. You land in a little town and all the gals who have just freshly cut their hair as a gesture of their... Female independents come running out to collect the mail, and you're just, uh, you twirl the little end of your little mustache. They've all got pies they've baked. 
They want you to come listen to a barbershop quartet with them. Why is this world so bereft of of wonder? I am going to buy you a bicycle with one of the big wheels and one of the little wheels. Thank you. Just a penny so you farthing. Can, a penny farthing bicycle. I'm not going to buy you a prop plane. You know, they were not riding penny farthings by 1926. That was in the 1890s. Yeah. I know. But still. So now how, although I had my private pilot's license when I was 17 years old, my private pilot's license, as well as my private pilot's license. <laughs> Does that mean you steer with your junk or like, no hands, here we no, go. Two totally separate uh, <laughs> adventures. But I'm going to sit and ask you about, about this dawning age of aviation in America. But only after making sure listeners are well aware <laughs> that you must know hundreds of times more about this than I do because of... All those long hours you spent piloting your own privates. That's right. At age 17. I was sitting in a high school gymnasium pouring over my FAA pilot's handbooks trying to take their dumb tests. So there are still, as you know, then there are still beacons today that mark, uh, you know, runways and uh, civilian and military installations all across America. Light beacons, you mean. Right, yes. Yeah. Certain patterns of light. Mm -hmm. And... A similar system, this first such system was called the Transcontinental Airway System, and it was created for these airmail pilots in the early 1920s. Now, honestly, I did not know about this. Oh. I honestly didn't. I mean, I know all about airport beacons, but I had no idea about this beacon system. Well, that's because you weren't flying in the 20s. Oh, God, I wish so badly that <laughs> Sorry I Sorry to were. rub it in. How <laughs> much did you fly when you were like a, a, a tween? A lot. Like how many, do you know your number of hours? Or I have whatever? my book around here somewhere. I mean, my dad, um, this was what he liked to do for fun. So we would go out to the airport, which was not far from our house and fire up the old Cessna 634 Mike Alpha, a little 172 that we owned. And we would putter off into the sky and, you know, uh, taking off and landing is the hard part, right? So my dad would turn the control of the aircraft over to me starting when I was about 10, Wow. And say, fly in a straight line. <laughs> Taught me how to use, you know, check the instruments and keep us keep us puttering along. I think my son would like to be a pilot. And he's always asking me if I think it's hard to fly a small plane. It's not. It's incredibly easy. Flying, it is not hard. Taking off really isn't even that hard. You just pour on the gas and wait until you're going fast enough and then pull back. How much of it is learning how to say things like Mike Alpha? You have to do, you have to be able to say that. You have to be able to say, you uh, have to learn you know, 26 words. Alpha Bravo, Charlie Delta. Mary Baker Eddy. Echo Foxtrot. Romeo Tango Niner. Yeah. You have to be able to talk like that. And also always in a monotone. Uh, Roger Tower. This is Cessna 634 Mike Alpha with uh, Bravo uh, and runway 14 uh, ready for takeoff. I have heard, and I don't know if this is true, that the, uh, the vocal affectation of American pilots is an imitation of Chuck Yeager. Oh, I think that's what Tom Wolf says in the right stuff. I don't doubt it. The Chuck that uh, he was Tom, so dead. Chuck Yeager had this very casual way of talking and <laughs> maybe emphasizing some odd words, and that's what pilots are imitating when they come on the PA. It's absolutely how they all talk. Pilots and and tower. That's just it's a it's a special little spin they put on the English language. Can you imagine if that's true that it's just everybody doing a Chuck Yeager impression? Well, and what's crazy is that English is the international language of aviation. So if you are a pilot flying for Saudi Airlines and you're landing in Moscow, you're speaking to each other in English. And do the Saudi pilots do that? They thing? they must. <laughs> so it's like Chuck Yeager did a crazy thing although he you know, he probably didn't have 14 kids. He did end up having millions and millions of children, children of the voice. Imagine if he had like, just had like a lisp or something 
And today all pilots did some out. <laughs> or if he talked like Jerry Lewis. And today all pilots are like, lady, six for takeoff. Nice lady, take your seat. That's a terrible Jerry Lewis impression, it turns yeah, out. Well, it's better than I would have done. <laughs> I never, never had to whip that one out before, and I probably never will again. Uh, so a series of beacons were erected, and not just beacons. I guess the idea was that, you know, these guys didn't have the most training in the world because as you point out, this was all just kind of, these were fly-by-night, self-taught sure. pirates. Uh, sure, I'll get a plane. Uh, no, you know. The barnstorming era, right? Completely sure. ad hoc. If you could tie two bicycles together and, and put a lawnmower on the front of it, you were a pilot. And no regulation. You could just fly through America's skies as long as you had a plane. Well, and also now we're talking about after World War I, there were a lot of pilots that had learned to fly during the That's war. That's true. And surplus aircraft. So it was an era when the barrier to entry was lower. And maybe a lot of people thinking, well, this is my big skill, I guess. I'm going to be an aviator now. And so the labor market helps create this idea that there should be airmail routes. Mm -hmm. So the Postal Service is in charge of this because they're the ones getting the mail there. Naturally. So they hire the pilots and they set up the beacons. Oh, really? It was a it was a post office venture. You don't trust the U.S. post office to set up a series of uh, of uh, beacons across a continent? I think I trust the 1920s post office more than I trust the 2020s post office. Going postal was not yet a thing. No. No, well, it was. It just required big cement beacons. <laughs> so all these, uh, each of these beacons had every 10 miles across the country, they would place a 51-foot steel tower that was lit by a million candle power rotating white beacon, hmm. and it had its own generator shed at the bottom. So It had to be white, I'm guessing, yeah. For racial reasons? Yeah, just because that was the era. I guess today there are different codes, like green and white means one thing, red and white means military or whatever. Uh, at this time, White on white was how you recognized one of these beacons. They were rotating, so it would appear to flash. Yeah. And then if you were lost, what you would do is you would circle the beacon, and on the on the a correct approach axis, there would be a secondary red light uh -huh. that would flash a letter in Morse code. And this Morse code pattern appears to have been chosen for no other reason than to have unlike dash and dot patterns near each other. Because the pattern was W-U-V-H-R-K-D-B-G-M repeating across the country. Huh. And that didn't mean anything. It was just, and then so if you were circling, you would be like, ah, oh, there's a V. And you'd look on your chart to see where the nearest V oh, in Wyoming was. And you'd be like, oh, we're right here. Because there couldn't be a V around there because any other nearby airport would be a W or a K or a D. Exactly. I see. And the, you know, and V in Morse code looks nothing like U or H, the neighboring one. So it'd be easy to narrow down. So that's why they chose those letters. And the pilots uh, generated a mnemonic because it's not super easy to remember Right. So they would always tell themselves, when undertaking very hard routes, keep direction by good methods. Oh. Even their mnemonics were sort of uh, spunky and can-do. Although it sounds like something you'd read on a t-shirt in Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, that would be a great t-shirt. When undertaking very hard routes, keep direction by good methods. That's going to, I am going to put that on my car or something. Yeah. Those are like words to live by. It's really good. But that does seem pretty spunky. Right. Like, hey, what were there? Because I feel like today's mnemonics would be maybe a little saucy. Sure. Or, you know, funny. You know how you, kids learning the solar system, it's like mother very earnestly made jelly sandwiches yeah. under no protest, except that one has Pluto, so it's deprecated. Now it would be like, why underwear varies? Right. Uh, and it wouldn't be sexist, too. It wouldn't be about your mom making you sandwiches while you watch TV. 
we don't need toxic masculinity in our astronomical mnemonics. I suppose not. Uh, Some of us don't. And the and the angle at which the red beacon flashed would tell you the next way to go. Right. That that would point you to your next beacon. Ten you know, miles down the road. These light signals are they still play quite a role in aviation even now. Like if you're if you're on final approach to a runway, there are lights at the end of the runway. I would hope so. Uh, banks. Well, not just the runway is lit, but there are signal lights pointing at the pilots. Uh, they're not visible from the ground. And if and they are red and white lights. What kind of information do they give you? So when you're on a clean approach, uh, a glide slope to land properly on the runway, you're going to see red and white lights at the end of the runway. And, and if the, the bottom set is white and the top set is red, it means you're headed straight in. And if both lights are white, it means you're coming in too high. And if both lights are red, it means you're coming in too low. And this is just what's at the end of every runway, the, of every controlled airport. And so it's kind of like a video game. You're in this little airplane and you're just like, whoa, I'm a little too high. And you cut the power and you put the flaps down a little bit. And then you're like, there I am. I'm right in the sweet spot. It doesn't like help you land. It just, it gives you that visual information that you're like headed in right. They invented uh, gamification. Yeah. The same kind of thing in your Prius that tells you if you're using your accelerator too much or whatever. And I think landing on an aircraft carrier, which is really hard, there's a lot of this kind of information. And there's actually a guy whose job it is on an aircraft carrier to be talking to the pilot and saying like, up, down, okay, up, 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 okay, now you're good. Okay, now down. Like they're actually communicating to the pilots, like give it a little bit of gas, take it away. You know, like that's their whole job. That's sexy. It's really, it's the, you know, that's why guys join the Navy. <laughs> you can sail the seven seas. Um, so this system enabled pilots to go all night long, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. Whereas before, what you'd have to do is land at dusk, because then you'd, at dusk you'd immediately be lost and be like, I think I'm in Wyoming, but this could be New Mexico, you know. Right. All you had is a compass. And uh, you would transfer your mail to rail cars, which would go all night to a different pilot somewhere else and fly during the day. Whoa. Which was the best system they had. Super not a good system. When you have airmail, but only during the, and now that I think about it, it would be harder in the winter when days are shorter, right? You know, in, in the winter, you can, you need longer rail trips because you got shorter air trips. Well, and you have to assume most of these runways are just carved out of the field next to the town, probably unlit for the most part, maybe right. even unplowed. I mean, it would have been a rugged adventure. And in addition, this is my favorite part of the transcontinental airway system, to aid in uh, navigation during the day, and I presume at night as well, uh, if uh, you know the light from the tower was bright enough, they actually built giant concrete arrows in the ground and painted them yellow and had them pointing in the direction of your route. Oh, so wow. all day, you know, you never had to look at a map because they essentially turned the country into a map where you could just lean your head out of the cockpit. Oh, yep. There's, oh, there's an arrow. I love that so much. The post office idiot-proofed America for pretty much any pilot who could follow these giant arrows. That's genius. And so by uh, 1924, like just a year after like Congress funded the building of these things, there were giant concrete markers every 10 miles, complete with these beacons, all the way from Rock Springs, Wyoming to Cleveland, Ohio. And by the next summer, it went all the way to New York. 
1929, just five years later, it spanned the continent uninterrupted, uninterrupted about every 10 miles. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. So it went from Wyoming to Ohio. Why? I wonder if that's the the um, low hanging fruit, and they did the Rockies after. Are these are these lit or not lit? The towers have lights in them. The arrows. Yes, and so there may be enough light down on the ground to see. It might be that if you exist. if you took off in the morning from Seattle, you wouldn't get to Wyoming, and or I mean. At night, you'd be in Wyoming, and that's when you would need the lights. Maybe that's true. And uh, then it would take you all the way to Ohio, and then it would be dawn. Right. But within five years, they had the whole country built. So it really is like at night, you're looking for the lights and the angle of the red beacon to show you which way your next beacon is. And during the day, duh, you've got this giant concrete arrow. This la you know, radio navigation started to catch on during the 30s and 40s, 30s right. probably, leading up to World War II. Right. And when World War II came, a lot of the towers were scrapped for metal for the war effort and also um, torn down on purpose because they didn't think that, you know, potential invading pilots should have a real great navigation system across America. <laughs> Follow this era too. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Here's the Statue of Liberty. So the Commerce Department decommissioned the beacons in the 40s. I think. Which I, you know, I guess there were, there used to be so much more of that type of thing. Like the national forests used to have those fire lookout towers. Yeah. And those lasted all the way into the seventies. Wait, are those gone? I guess I just assumed that all the tech I see in Yogi Bear cartoons is still in the national park. Some of those towers have been preserved and restored and now are, I swear to you, Airbnbs. Uh, the, the <laughs> like the park service is, uh, like rents them out. You can go stay in them. But I guess they don't need to staff those anymore because like one webcam can replace a giant tower. Yeah. I mean, imagine a time when your summer job was sitting in one of those towers looking out with binoculars for forest fires. Okay. This is what makes me nostalgic for a time I never had. Yeah. I mean, that's a great job if you're a writer and if you're like a writer who actually sits and writes rather than a writer who writes uh, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy a <laughs> hundred thousand times. There's hotels for them. <laughs> Yeah, but, I wonder if there's a list of great novels that were written by, by people sitting, because uh, it seems like the ideal job. For me, sure. I mean, you're just out in the forest and there's no one there and you have a nice little hut and you're in out of the weather and you're just looking out at the horizon all day and you're getting, I mean, even if they're paying you a dollar a week, it seems like 
Uh, I would I would pay them. I would I would pay them too. What a great job! It seems like all those writers turned out to be like they were World War One ambulance drivers in France or something. But what they right. really should have been doing, what would have been better for their art, yeah. is uh, fire spotting. Just fire spotting. Yeah. I mean, I remember in the in the in the eighties, those uh, towers were still. I still would see them in national parks, but I think most of them decayed and were were decommissioned and torn down. The uh, most of the beacons are gone. Although I've I see that some in, are actually still in service in Montana. I don't know what is particular to big sky country that uh, a certain kind of pilot needs a certain kind of beacon. Well, they it's a big sky up there as part the of the sky reason. is just so big. I imagine that that front that front line of the Rocky Mountains, you would you would welcome a few beacons. You know the the, the various different passes are probably. Uh, fairly opaque if is the it, weather's bad. Is it possible the pilots are just incredibly dumb there? Oh, yeah, or they might just, they might be, like, drunk. Because <laughs> Montana's the state that had, like, no speed limits, right? Yeah. So, like, there's a lot of, you know, pilots doing the same thing, just going wherever they want. Yeah, no rules, no right. But a lot of the arrows are still there. You know, the yellow paint has faded, and the concrete is cracked. Is that true? But there's still giant arrows across America, and people trying to... Uh, collect them. Uh, you know, you can find in our day, I, and I hope they still exist in the future, in our day, you can find websites that have tracked down 115 arrows still remaining and have actually gone to 62 of them to photograph. I cannot believe that I have never seen a single one of these, nor did I even know that this was a thing, because this is right up my alley. I know, right? And every 10 miles. And, you know, a lot of them are on private land or, you know, someplace ungettoable. That or, never stopped me. <laughs> or maybe even unrecognizable from the ground, you right. know, like uh, maybe from the air you could still vaguely tell. There is one here in the state of Washington, which is, looks like kind of, uh, oh, it's not that far from Hanford, the nuclear project we discussed in the Conqueror entry of the Omnibus. It's a little northeast of Hanford. Uh-huh. Like That's the only one in Washington? Morse. That's the only arrow known to these researchers, although there are many beacons in this state. There are still 17 beacons standing. Uh, that are operating? No. They are... Uh, They're still there. Deprecated, as we would say, in the software development world. So I... Yeah, um, ruins. When I was a kid, there was an airport where the beacon was visible from my house, and it was Merrill Field. And I would, uh, when I was up late... I would sit and look out the window and watch the, you couldn't see the beacon, but you could see the lights of the beacon reflecting on the clouds. And it was a green white uh, rotating beacon rather than like a white white. It wasn't one of these navigational beacons. It was an airport beacon, but it was the kind of spooky. It was the sort of spooky, like what I imagined the the whistle of a steam train was <laughs> to uh, to my mother's generation. Like a, it just seemed like otherworldly and also old, like like dating from a distant other time, a barnstorming time. I think if you if you saw the beacons today, you 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 might be aware that there's something old, but you wouldn't be like, oh, that's an you know, it, it could be an air raid siren or any other kind of you know, some other kind of civilian system. They don't look markedly weird. It would just be the arrows from the air. If you've ever been out, you ever been out to Rattlesnake Ledge just outside Seattle? No. Popular hike, just, you know, not far past 
Issaquah, actually, uh, just east of Seattle. Rattlesnake Ledge, you say? Yes. And, uh, you know, it's it's always just packed on weekends because it's a nice, easy hike, super close to Seattle. But That's I'm, probably why I haven't been there. I only do really difficult hikes. You're you're out, like, uh, <laughs> doing uh, three-day long-term yeah, up, backpacking. Up and down Rainier. Uh, but on the top of Mount Rattlesnake, apparently there is still one of these, uh, beacons standing, though not the arrow. So if you want to get across America in our time, you can no longer follow a system of giant concrete arrows visible from the sky. It feels a little, sad. it feels a little bit like geocaching. I know that's a thing that you love to do, but like the kind of scavenger hunt aspect of like tracing this route via giant concrete arrows that point. And I'm seeing now looking at these online that a lot of the arrows have little turns in them. Like if, if the route is meant to at a certain point say like, now you need to turn 15 degrees to the South. The arrow actually will bend at the corner. It's, it's the yellow brick road, basically. It's so charming. Except instead of the Emerald city, it goes to San Francisco. But yeah, like we're in an age uh, where the world is pretty well explored and People like to explore these hidden treasures instead. And I think, you know, making a collection of these giant concrete arrows is right up the alley of a certain kind of modern day Lewis and Clark. Well, you, I think often about what our world will look like to futurelings. And so much of it won't survive, right? The glass will shatter, the, the steel will rust, anything that's, that has much load on it will crumble eventually. Like, yeah, go to any big Roman city, you know, those those were the biggest cities in the world 2000 years ago. And now maybe some rubble and maybe not even that. Yeah. And I mean, and they even were constructed out of stone, right. uh, which, you know, should, should, you think that'll hold up better than drywall will last, right? I mean, and the wood will burn and so forth, but these concrete and, and freeways that are built on pilings will all fall. But some of this stuff out in the desert that's made out of concrete, it doesn't get much rain. It's ground level, it's so it's, ground, it's totally flat. It's, there's nothing, uh, you know, all that will happen is it will get scoured by the wind and maybe buried. But it may be that 10,000 years from now, some stuff like this, like some concrete ephemera, some arrows in the desert are what are left behind. It won't be the Statue of Liberty's head. No. It'll be Charlton Heston finding one of these arrows. And just like, what is it pointing to? Damn you to hell! Points to the next arrow. What is this all about? (laughs) It's a giant troll. And that concludes the Transcontinental Airway System. Entry 1327.PS4304 Certificate number 34... 096 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that you have followed concrete arrows to our repository silo in the middle of the desert where we have lodged these platinum recordings, I would like to say that there's more that we have to offer than just this omnibus podcast. We're an infomercial now. We also. But, but wait, there's <laughs> but, more. But wait. There's more at at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick on Twitter. For a limited time only. Oh my goodness, the wealth of comedy jokes and other fun times you'll find there. What's your uh, favorite kind of joke? Because for my money, there's nothing better than a good comedy joke. 
I like a comedy joke. You seem to like puns more than I do because you're a 50s dad. I like tragedy jokes as well. I like to uh, I like to troll people who really are just innocently out there just not looking to be trolled. Like I don't I don't go troll Republicans or I don't I don't troll NRA people. I just put stuff out there like Seattle has the best pizza. And all that's doing is just trolling these dinglings in New York that are like we have the best pizza as though anybody cares. Hey, forget, hey, forget about it. Hey, you're, what's the matter with you? You're making so many people say forget about it. I am. I do. And I do it all the time. I don't know why. I was like, I, I tweeted the other day that, that trapdoor spiders were the best insect. And, you know, why am I doing that? Like, these poor people are just fast asleep somewhere and they wake up. Spiders aren't insects. And I, it's like, it's, I, I don't know what my problem is. I can just, you realize you can make tens of thousands of people angry. Which is an ability that no human has had, like, unless you're like Nero or Caligula, like no human ever had. And you're like, will I use this wisely? Yes. No, I won't. No, not today. (laughs) Tap it, tap it, tap it, tap it. Take that, world. (laughs) Nameless guy named Gary. Yeah, Gary. And then I get all these emails that are like, actually, and I feel like I'm not having fun at this. (laughs) A lot of people were yelling at me today about whether it's called soda or pop. And it's like the oldest, dullest thing. This is the most important thing we do for the future is to convey how unfun uh, the, the internet was. <laughs> uh, you can also see our uh, tweets at uh, Omnibus Project, at Omnibus Project. And uh, I'm on Instagram, and so is Omnibus Project at our respective handles. Also, you can email us uh, from any time in history at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. And you can go on Facebook and make other friends and potentially find a life partner and mate at Omnibus Futurelings on Facebook. We regret to say that there is no way for us to know how long our present world will last. Our civilization may not survive the afternoon. We hope and pray that this catastrophe will never come. But if the worst comes soon, this very recording, the one you are still listening to instead of fast forwarding through the outro for some reason, may be our final word to you. But if providence allows, if the hand of the Almighty allows us to be with you again, we will rejoin you soon, this we swear, for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>